So Ecclesiastes 9, Ecclesiastes comes right after Proverbs, which comes after the Psalms, in case you're still looking for it. Ecclesiastes 9, and the sermon text this evening is verses 13 through 18, but let's begin at verse 11, Ecclesiastes 9, verse 11. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared in an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, And a great king came against it and besieged it, building a great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard and quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. But one sinner destroys much good. Now turning to the New Testament, the First Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. First Corinthians 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So I want to take you to uh, a date. Uh, The date is September 25th, 1983. It's an important date because it was on that day that the early warning system, the nuclear early warning system of the former Soviet Union, sounded an alarm. 
And the alarm said that there were multiple missile heads that had been launched from the United States were on their way to the Soviet Union. In fact, the alarm went off not only one time, it went off five times. And the appropriate response to the decision of one man uh, was to uh, fully retaliate with the response of 38,000 missiles. And that man's name was Stanislav Petrov. But something told him, whether it's his, his training or instinct, whatever it was, that this was a false alarm. And so he decided not to give the command to retaliate. As it turned out, he was right. It was a false alarm, a good thing. Some estimate that he saved instantly at least probably 180 million lives. In one sense, you could say he saved the world. And yet probably nobody in this room remembers his name. If you're born before after 1983, you're off the hook. Uh, but for the rest of us, none of us remember his name. It's an interesting thing. And immediately when it was when this was found out, he was uh, regarded as a hero. And uh, people thought very highly of him. But then when it was discovered that it was a faulty system, this made his superiors look bad. And this could not be. And so he was very quietly retired and set off to the country where he was given a cottage and a place to live so that everybody would forget the whole thing. And we have. We have. And who knows how many other things like this have taken place where one person did something that was amazingly wise and, and good and important, but was forgotten. And the author of Ecclesiastes uh, cites this as an example of the things he talks about in, in verses 11 and, and 12, the preceding verses, which we're not going to look at this evening. And he begins verse 13 and said, I, th- I thought of an example of the very principle that I was describing. And he does this in two sections, where in verses 13 to 15, he, he speaks to the, the wisdom of weakness, the wisdom of a, of a weak man. And then in verses 15 through 18, we see the weakness of wisdom. So those are our two points this evening if you're one of these note takers. Verses 13 to 15, wisdom of weakness. 15 through 18, weakness of wisdom. So he begins basically by saying the wisdom of the poor, the wisdom of a poor man in this instance, is greater than the power of the mighty. This is an example of the things he's been describing earlier. And the scenario he has in view is a small city that is facing in a hopeless situation against impossible odds. And the contrast could not be greater. You have a little city on the one hand versus this great king. You have very few individuals up against these great siege works and all these these weapons. So on the one hand, you have no power and few means at their disposal against massive power and great means against it. So this is a situation. And yet the city was rescued. It was saved through an unlikely person, unlikely savior, this, this poor wise man. By poor, that puts the emphasis upon this is not a person of position or of power, prominence or, or privilege. And yet this is the very person that delivered the city. And again, this is an example of the fact that the race is not always to the swift, that the battle is not always to the strong. You're not always going to see wisdom with the majority. Sometimes it's lodged in just this one person, and this one word of, of a wise man can overthrow a great power. Now, we have examples of this in Scripture. One of them is in Second Samuel 20, how the word of a wise person can overthrow great power. In 2 Samuel 20, we read of Sheba, 
who was a man who rose up against David, rebelling against David. And he traveled throughout Israel, and he ended up in the city of Abel. And Joab, the general of the army, comes to Abel. He brings his army, and he begins to pile up a siege work against the city, begins to batter against uh, the front gate. And a woman appears at the top and yells down, What are you doing? This is Abel. And there was a saying people used to say that, that go to Abel, there you'll find wisdom. And I'm one of those women that remembers this. And why are you trying to destroy the inheritance of Israel and Abel? And it was Job who said, well, the problem is, is that you have a man there that we're after. His name uh, is Sheba. And she says, his head will be thrown over the wall to you. Negotiations in those days were pretty swift and direct and radical. We have one in, in history as well. In 231, Syracuse, you have this city. It's about to, uh, to be attacked by 60 Roman ships. But that city had a mathematician. And never underestimate the power and the ability of a, of a mathematician. His name was Archimedes. And he had developed these massive cranes and catapults that could project out over the water. And one of them had a kind of claw on it that could descend and grab a ship or drop stones upon that ship. And these 60 amphibious ships were not able to overtake the city because of this one mathematician. These are examples of what our author is telling us. It just takes one person. One voice, one idea. That's the power of wisdom. If it is recognized and heard. Right? If it's appreciated, if it is, if it is followed and, and received. You see, there's a vulnerability of wisdom as well. It's not always heeded. It's not always appreciated. And that's what he gets to in verses 15 through 18. Wisdom is better. It's always better, but it's not always recognized. It's not always honored. Think of this man who saved the city. What should happen to this man? Well, he should be remembered. He should be regaled with honors, right? He should be promoted. The city should enshrine him and his deeds uh, into the, the corporate memory of the city, erect a statue, uh, have a holiday in his name. This is what happened to Alvin York, this poor uh, rural boy from Tennessee. He went off to World War I. Nobody knew who he was, and yet he turned out to be a tremendous soldier, captured an entire German company of soldiers. And when he came home, he was given many uh, a hero's welcome. He was not only given uh, recognized by the United States, by other countries as well for his heroics in that war. But as he returned to Tennessee, the, tennis, the state of Tennessee rewarded him with a, a small farm and a home. They, they remembered what he had done. They didn't forget him. Something like that should happen to this man. But what does verse 15 say? He was not remembered. Nobody's thinking about what he did. Nobody's talking about his, his wisdom and how he rescued this, this little city. We have an example of this in the Old Testament as well. Think of Joseph. Right? This is one man. An imprisoned slave. And he stands before the king and through his wisdom saves countless lives. Saves a remnant for God, saves many, many lives. And yet what does scripture say, say that a Pharaoh arose who knew Joseph not, didn't know anything about him? How could something like that be forgotten? Who saves a civilization, who saves all these, these lives. And yet that's exactly what our text is telling us, that wisdom 
has real value. It should be listened to. It should be regarded. It's, it's greater than, than much might. And yet, what do we read in verse 16? His wisdom was despised. His words were not heard. His deeds were forgotten. I mean, after all, he was poor. So he could be easily dismissed. Even though wisdom is better. It's always better. It's always better than folly. It's one of the themes of, of this book, that even a quiet voice of wisdom is greater than the shouting of the rich and the powerful among fools. You have an example of this in 1960. Since we're picking on the Soviet Union this evening, let's just keep going. Uh, the first general secretary of the Communist Party was Nikita Khrushchev, right? And he was making a speech at the United Nations, and he began to raise his volume, began to shout that wasn't enough. And believe it or not, he took his, his shoe off of his foot and began to pound the desk next to him to dramatically make his point. Among all these powerful people that represent all the world, here is a man pounding the desk with his, his shoe. And it makes us think of our day. What is it that makes the news? It's the loudest, the most outrageous, the most ridiculous, the most controversial. It only takes a little folly to overcome the greatness of wisdom. Just as uh, he was making this point that one small idea can stifle all the machinery of war, if it's given a chance, it's also the case that just one evil voice, one bad idea, can undo all the good that wisdom has accomplished. It goes both both ways. It doesn't matter how great that, that wisdom is. It doesn't take very much many times to dethrone it. We think of the kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament. In 1 Kings 12, here is Rehoboam. He is is handed a silver platter of a kingdom that is the fruit of the wisdom of his his father, the accomplishments of his his grandfather, David, and all of his uh, what he's brought about in terms of peace for the kingdom. But because he listens to the advice of his young friends instead of those who were around Solomon, this one man, what does he do? Through his decision, through one decision, he divides all of Israel. He undoes, undoes all the good of his father and his, his grandfather. So verse 13 makes the point that just one poor man can overcome a great king's. Verse 18, one sinner can overcome great wisdom. Perhaps some of you have been to, to Europe and seen the great cathedrals that are built there. One of these was being built and there was an engineer who began to raise questions about the, the quality of the stone that was taken from one of the quarries and, and said that this is bad stone. We shouldn't be using it. And the cathedral, in terms of its exterior and its um, its body, about three-fourths of it was built when the whole thing collapsed. And they searched through all the stones, and they found out the culprit was one bad stone, just one stone taken from the quarry that this man had warned against. These are all pictures of how evil began In this world, it was by listening to one voice, one evil voice that said, eat the fruit and you'll become like God. And by listening to that voice, all the paradise was undone. True wisdom was denied in favor of sinful folly. And see, this is why we can appreciate why the preacher says here in verse 13, This seemed great to me. He doesn't mean great in in terms of awesome or wonderful. He's saying, this seems particularly important, this lesson. 
He doesn't say that often in this book. And there's intervals where he stops. He said, you need to reflect upon this. This is perhaps one of the most important insights that I could give to you in this book. This is really significant. This point that he's making is actually two points. He's making that this lesson about wisdom shows us two things. On the one hand, it shows us what wisdom can do, what it can accomplish. Even if it arises from the most humble source, if it's heard and appreciated, it's amazing what wisdom can do, what it can overcome. But secondly, how wisdom can be so quickly dismissed. How it can be forgotten when it's not valued. And he's making the point that, that real wisdom is, is not always appreciated or cherished, or at least not for long. And it can be the thing that you most need to hear. It can be the best word that can be spoken to you, and yet it can be ignored, or worse, despised. Wisdom can save many lives, or it can be lost in the madness of the mob. That's why we don't listen to the mob. That's why we need to be like Luther. We need to be like Athanasius, who at the time was in the minority for holding to a proper view of Christ and who he is. And so when it comes to issues of of right and wrong, we're not looking to the majority. It's amazing. You cannot leave a website these days without being, have to take a poll. We want to know what you think so that we can say, this is what most people think is right and wrong. That's not where we look. We're not looking to the world to, to find out what, what does it mean truly to be rich? What does it mean to be beautiful? What is love? What's normal? Where is life? Are we going to listen to the mob for that or listen to wisdom? Scripture says the church, we could say, is like a city on a hill. It's to be a light to the world. But it's also a city like the city described in this text. It is small. And we are surrounded by many. We're surrounded by great powers that oppose us. And it's tempting to to succumb to that and to think that we ought to listen to the vast majority of, of those that are out there. But that's not what Scripture tells us to do. We listen to wisdom. And think of the book of Proverbs, how it opens again and again. What is that father figure saying to his son? He says, son, listen to me. Listen to wisdom. This is life and death. Listen. So it's an important lesson that we're we're given here that seems so important and great to the author. But you and I can think of another example of what he's talking about under the sun that seems great to us, that seems so important to us. And it's it's this. It's thinking of the so-called weakness of, of God's wisdom as it's described by Paul in 1 Corinthians 1. It's a great example of the very thing that the author of Ecclesiastes is talking about, that to the world, what does the cross appear to be? What does it look like in the eyes of the world? That The cross seems, Paul says, like folly. And it seems like weakness. Certainly not wisdom. Certainly not power. That's not how the world looks upon the cross of Christ. In fact, Paul says the message of the cross is foolishness. In the eyes of the world. It does not fit the categories of the world and what it considers to be wise and strong and powerful. In fact, he says the preaching of the cross is an obstacle to the Jew. It's a laughingstock to the Greek. That is still true, that God's wisdom does not satisfy the demands of the modern mind, the categories that it uses in order to, to measure these things. 
as C.S. Lewis has said, he says, God is on the dock. And what he means by that is that it used to be the case that God was seen as the judge of men, but that's no longer the case. God's the one who's on trial. Man is now the one who is the judge, and it's a great problem for man shaping God to be conformed to our, our notions and to try to conform the cross to modern notions. But in fact, the cross does what? It shocks and confounds and it offends men's sensibilities, especially his pride. And so God's wisdom is not heard. The wisdom of the cross is not heard. In fact, it's rejected. It's resented. It's, it's even forgotten. It's suppressed, Romans 1 says. And John 1 tells us that though Christ came, made the world, he came to the world, the world did not receive him. It says he came to his own, but his own uh, did not receive him. They didn't hear him. They didn't believe in him. We think about his ministry, Christ is teaching, and the people recognize there's something unusual about this teaching. He doesn't teach like the scribes and the Pharisees. He teaches with authority. He's, he's unfolding truth, pure truth. And yet, how did the Pharisees see Jesus? They dismissed him. We don't have to listen to the simple carpenter. They despised him for what he said. And what is this trial? It is a quiet voice being drowned out by the shouting voices of fools and liars. He's before Pilate. And it's the mob that, it, that overcomes. It's the mob that persuades Pilate yelling out Barabbas. And the irony of all of this, in terms of the way the world hears Christ, is here's the one in his whole ministry that by a mere word, Christ could cast out demons, chase away diseases, multiply fish and loaves and feed thousands through his compassion and through his power. This is the one who could raise the dead by a spoken word and do so as easily as he brought forth all the galaxies of the universe. This is who he is in reality. But is that wisdom heard? Is it received? His voice was not heard. Christ was spurned and dismissed. But in fact, but in fact, the gospel is the display of God's wisdom and the power of that wisdom. A power that overcomes evil. The gospel is about how one man, in the eyes of many, a poor man of wisdom, overcame the great power of sin and death and Satan. When we think of the cross, the, the scriptures encourage us to, to see the cross as a convergence of many of the excellencies of our God. It says the cross really displays for us the holiness of God. This is what it costs when you offend God's holiness. This is the standard of, of righteousness, how righteousness can be satisfied and obtained. It's, it's a demonstration of God's love. But Paul tells us it's not just the convergence of God's righteousness and holiness and love, it's also a display of his wisdom and his power. A wisdom and power that delivers sinners. That the cross, in fact, is not foolishness. It is the wisdom of God's power. It is a wisdom that satisfies the righteous requirements of God's justice, but it also satisfies the need of a guilty and poor sinner. So that God is both just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians, Christ Jesus is and has become for us a wisdom for God. 
a wisdom from God that provides for our righteousness and our holiness and our redemption. This, this is not foolishness. This is wisdom. And so also the cross is not weakness. It is the power of God's wisdom. It is a power that puts sin's power to end. It puts away sin's power and its ability to condemn us or to reign over us or to sting us eternally. Death dies in the death of Jesus Christ. Now, if these things are true, it means the gospel is just what we need. The gospel is for poor sinners, not the righteous. The gospel is for the sick, not the well. It's not for those who despise and doubt. It's for all who believe. And perhaps as you sit there this evening in your secret thoughts, uh, you're saying, but I fall short and I fail. I'm a poor excuse for a Christian. I am very weak. If that is true, I would tell you you've come to the right place. If the siege works of temptation continue to rise up against you, like this powerful army against a small city, if the world and Satan are pounding against the walls of your heart and if sin and evil desires are clamoring within you and within your heart, then you've come to the right place. Everything about the salvation of God is about your weakness and about the power of God's grace. The gospel is about that you were dead, but God made you alive. You were blind, but he gave you sight. That you were deaf, but he made you hear. You were lost, and he found you. And even as a Christian, you could say, but I'm weak, and I fell, and I stumbled. But the gospel is about God's grace, which is sufficient and is strong and will not fail. cross is the death of sin's power and its sting. It's the end of Satan's rule over us. Satan saw the cross probably as a moment of great conquest, not realizing until afterwards it was his doom. And in fact, God put to open shame all rule and authority of spiritual darkness. And if you miss that point in his death, you get it in his resurrection where Christ gains the victory over the grave. Everything about the work of Christ and his death and his resurrection shows us his success in his work and how it covers the offense of our sin. It exhausts the wrath of God. It satisfies God's offended righteousness. It washes away our sin. But it's also about what he obtains. He obtains the forgiveness of sins. He he wins that favor of God. He gains for us this right standing that we have before God in our adoption into the family of God. It shows us that what is impossible for man to conceive in his folly is possible for God to secure in his wisdom by the cross. The gospel is more than words. It's a divine word spoken by the Almighty God for sinners. It's a word that speaks and therefore saves. I say the world, it's It's weakness. It's powerless. But Romans 8 ends in this great triumphal tone and asks this question, who is to condemn? Who is to condemn? It is God who declares you as righteous. It is God who justifies. It's the God that spoke into existence all that you and I see. It's the same God who speaks this word, this declaration that you are forgiven of your sins 
if you trust in Jesus Christ. It's a gospel that tells us there is no sin that the Lord Jesus cannot atone for, that he cannot overcome, that he cannot crush. As Richard Sibbs put it, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. And as you think of your stance before Christ, what you have in Christ, the power in you is the resurrection power of Christ. It's that same power that made you alive. It's that power that enables you to die to sin and to live in, in righteousness. It's that, that same power that would bring you into glory. As Paul says, that he is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power that is at work in us. And that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. The gospel is all about power. That you're saved not just by the greatness of God's love, but by the greatness of God's power. The power of his wisdom. That we should count real wisdom. That's why we worship this evening. That's why we sing this evening as we will one day in glory. With all glorified saints and the angels in heaven, all of us will have this song upon our lips. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Blessing, glory, honor, power, might, and wisdom forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray.